It's 2, 3 a.m. Our patrol guys exhausted everything they could do. Our canines check and don't come across any kind of track that leads them in any direction one way or the other. We have nothing. Hi, I'm Yardley. This is Detective Dan. Hey there. And his identical twin brother, Detective Dave. Hello. And this is Small Town Dicks. You'll hear detectives from small towns around the world discuss their most memorable cases. We cover the intimate details of what went wrong and what went right. As these dedicated men and women search for justice and crack the case. Names and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. So please join us in maintaining their anonymity out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have one of the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to see you. Great to see you. Our own Detective Dave is off fighting crime in Small Town, USA. But as always, he is here with us in spirit. And Small Town fam, I hope you're sitting down because we have one of our favorite original guests from the podcast. We have Detective Justin, who gave us bait and switch. He gave us supply chain. We adore Justin. He's been extraordinarily busy, and we are grateful that he has agreed to give us his day off to sit down and chat with us. Justin, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Justin was also part of our season one minisodes in Canine Tales. That's true, because Justin inherited Dan's canine, Fido. This is true. Anywho, I digress. Justin, please take it away. Sure. So this case is from a few years ago now that happened actually on the early morning hours after Thanksgiving back in 2018. Happened in kind of a normal average neighborhood here in our small town. It's a house that was known to us. Specifically, we've served a couple drug search warrants there. And so from my perspective, I've been there at least twice that I can remember the gentleman that lives there, named Jason, was a, not high level, but was a drug dealer in town. So we knew the house. What kind of weight are we talking that Jason is moving? I would call it street level. Jason basically sells drugs to support his own drug habit. You know, his family, he has some family, but they're not overly close. I mean, they are aware of each other. They're not enemies, but he's not tight knit with any family. And so he kind of lives this life of dealing drugs and getting by day to day. And each time we serve a drug search warrant there, it's the typical drug den. There's any number of people that may or may not live there present. And then there's property of all sorts all over the house. Living rooms full of tools, beds, kayaks, bows and arrows. I mean, you name it. And anything that can be traded for drugs is just there. And it's stolen property. Most of it, yeah. A lot of the times it's not able to be traced back because people won't have their serial number or a description of whatever the item is that lets us identify it uniquely. And so, you know, there's how many DeWalt power saws out there. Well, this guy had like four of them and he didn't buy any of them, but we can't prove that they came from somewhere else. And so it just piles up. And with that, they don't have a great outlet for it either because eventually pawn shops start asking questions or we can check pawn records and they draw attention to themselves. And so they just collect crap. Got it. So Thanksgiving 2018, I get a day off because it's a holiday, hoping nothing major happens. And that kind of maintains until the early morning hours of the Friday after Thanksgiving when I get the call from my boss saying, hey, 
had a murder. I need you to get to work. So I say a few choice words under my breath because I'm still asleep from a big turkey dinner and uh, get <laughs> dressed and head into work. And usually you don't recognize the name or the address that these cases happen at. But this time I did. As I'm getting into work, I'm starting to listen to the radio. And at this point, the suspect's still outstanding. What does that mean? He's missing. Right. We don't know where he's at. And so that immediately changes our priorities as far as the investigation goes. And we do two things at the same time. One, we handle the investigation and evidence collection portion of the case, witness interviews, all that stuff that has to get done. But we have this giant problem of the suspect being outstanding. He could be at the next door neighbor's house or he could be on his way to Mexico for all we know. And so we have to try to do both at the same time. And it starts really tying up resources really fast. As we're talking to witnesses, you know, we get a pretty good idea of what happened from some people that were at the house and what happened leading up to the actual murder. And pretty quick, we had the suspect's name. And what was the suspect's name? Tommy was the suspect. And these witnesses, again, are brought to this house through this drug activity. They're all drug users looking to have a place to stay. Our best witness in this case, he's listed as a transient. He hasn't had an address of his own in as long as I've been at my agency. He's not just someone hard up on their luck going through a bad time. He's truly just a transient. And that's how he's chosen to live his adult life. And what's his name? Bill. But Bill, in addition to being transient, Bill has one eye. And so he goes by one-eyed Bill. He's literally missing an eye, and in this case, he's our eyewitness. That's a funny pun, even though I don't think you were going for a pun. Um, Okay, let me just get my ducks in a bucket here. Justin, you've been called to Jason's house. Tommy is the murder suspect, and Bill, one-eyed Bill, is the eyewitness. Right. And who was killed? Jason. Okay, got it. And why is Bill at Jason's house? Bill, for the Thanksgiving holiday, he's found a roof over his head at Jason's house. And so he's able to tell us what happened that night leading up to the murder. And it's kind of eerie how normal the evening was up until it wasn't. Now, by all accounts, Jason is kind of an asshole. Jason runs a house with an iron fist kind of thing. And it's his house. And he makes sure that everyone there knows that it's his house. He's a bigger guy. He's in his 50s. He's able to kind of impose his demands on people. And so everyone we talk to in this case, no one disputes the fact that Jason's kind of a jerk. They get done with the meal. They all kind of go back to their normal activity. So there's some drug use. Jason goes into the kitchen and is looking for some ice cubes. And somebody forgot to refill the ice cube trays. That's it. Jason snaps and is ranting and raving in the kitchen about no one filling up the ice cube trays. And you lazy bastards, how hard is it to fill an ice cube tray? The living area is kind of a wraparound design where the kitchen's on one side of an inside wall and the other side of the wall is the living room turned bedroom area. And then there's a kitchen that connects them. So you, you could run circles around the living room, kitchen, dining room area of this house. And so as Jason's going off in there, it's absolutely directed at those guys in the living room. It's their fault that the ice cube trays aren't full and he wants them to hear about it. So in the living room, we have one-eyed Bill, another gentleman who'd actually come up from a city several hours away. He'd met Jason through buying drugs, but really wasn't a close friend. And then Tommy, And they're in the living room area 
and they're listening to Jason have this fit over ice cube trays. Tommy kind of decides, you know what? I've had enough of Jason's shit. And Tommy grabs a 22 caliber handgun that he had and walks around into the dining room area against that horseshoe-shaped living area. And Jason's still at the refrigerator sink area, ranting and raving. And out of nowhere, Tommy shoots Jason four times in the back. Holy shit. Tommy comes back into the living room area and tells everyone, I just shot Jason. And he's holding a gun and has a pillowcase in his other hand that he'd covered the gun up with. To, like, muzzle it, the sound? I think more than anything to make it so Jason couldn't see the gun. But he didn't really confront Jason either. He just... He shot him in the back. Right. Minus the distance portion of it, it was an execution-type shooting. Jason didn't have any opportunity to defend himself or get out of the way or anything like that. And so Tommy and One-Eyed Bill actually have an exchange here that One-Eyed Bill tells us about, about what to do with the gun and whether they should get rid of it or here, you take it so I don't have it with me. And One-Eyed Bill wants nothing to do with this. He's not the most upstanding citizen by any stretch of the imagination, but he knows he doesn't want to be part of a gun, let alone a gun that was just used to shoot somebody. And so he tells Tommy, hey, no way am I touching that. You're on your own. And at this point now, everyone in the house is kind of realizing bad things just happen. And when bad things happen, the police inevitably end up there. And so people scatter. One-Eyed Bill takes off. The other guy that was in the house takes off. Jason's obviously hurt, dying, if not already dead, on the kitchen floor. And Tommy's out of there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, a little bit of backstory on Tommy. Tommy's life hasn't always been like this. Tommy had a professional career, good paying job up until maybe a decade prior to this. And then he had some things go poorly, some relationship issues in his life that affected him. And it caused kind of the downward spiral. He's in his 50s. He's kind of the same age as Jason. And so this isn't a lifelong druggy type suspect in this case. It's a guy that had a normal life and had resources and a marriage and all sorts of stuff that ended up falling apart on him. And so his life kind of followed. It is something that's unfortunate that we see in this job is how fast you can lose it if addiction grabs a hold of you. Exactly. 100%. I have no doubt that had Tommy not had this addiction, we wouldn't have had this case. 
you know, his life circumstances got bad. He tried something, it grabbed him. And then 10 years later, he's spending Thanksgiving at a house full of other drug users that he barely knows. And then a few hours after dinner, he ends up killing the guy who lives there. It's totally rooted in that drug culture that they're living in. Does Tommy have a vehicle? He has a car. Tommy's got a station wagon that he's had, but because he's living hit to hit, staying wherever he can with a roof over his head, gas light is on. It's been running on empty for a day or two, and he makes it like a block and a half in his car before out of gas, done. Oh. So they talk about, you know, don't let your tank fall below a quarter tank or whatever amount it is, especially if you plan on killing somebody because you're going to need that car to get away. (laughs) And so he has to park it, rolls to a stop against the curb, and he's on foot. So immediately after the shooting, there's a couple words exchanged, but mostly everybody takes off. Yes. Who calls 911 initially? Our first 911 call in this case is from a neighbor's residence. And it's the neighbor calling that, hey, this strange guy's pounding on my door asking to get let in. And that's the first information we have of anything going wrong at Jason's house. And it's not even tied to that house. It's just that area. Yeah. Oh, you mean the neighbor that calls 911 isn't Jason's next door neighbor? They just live in the same general neighborhood. Yeah. Okay. And then... They call 911 because one of the men who was staying at Jason's is banging on the neighbor's door for help. Exactly. Okay. And that call isn't in and of itself something that we get super excited about. Suspicious circumstances. Exactly. You know, they're going to send two patrol officers that way to try to find the guy, figure out what his deal is. And so that's our initial dispatch on this murder is a suspicious subject on a neighbor's porch pounded on the door. And who was that suspicious subject? So it ends up being one-eyed Bill, who doesn't have his own phone, and so he needs to get to a phone. And so once he feels that he's safely away from the house, he starts pounding on a totally uninvolved neighbor's door. Hey, you know, I need to use your phone. And you probably wouldn't want to let him use your phone either. It's not a smart move in the middle of the night. It's 2, 3 a.m. at this point, holiday weekend, and there's this strange guy pounding on the door. They did the right thing. They call the police. So that's our initial alert that something is going on in the neighborhood. When One-Eyed Bill doesn't get what he wants from that house, he goes to another house. And from that other house, they let him use their phone. And so he ends up getting a hold of 911 and actually speaking with our dispatcher about what's going on and is able to kind of explain that though he's a suspicious subject pounding on doors, yeah, that's me, but here's why I'm doing it. Someone's been shot, and this is the address. And so then it becomes a much, much more serious incident for us. And we basically send every officer we have Jason's direction, but we have no idea where Tommy is. Tommy is relatively unknown in our area. Like I said before, he doesn't have a lot of police contacts. And so it's not one of those, oh, I know where he hangs out kind of guys, or I know where his mom lives, or I know really anything about him for our patrol guys. At the same time, our dispatchers are researching, doing computer work, trying to come up with intel of where he might go or who he might be with. And everyone's striking out. There's just not a lot to go on. We found the car fairly quickly. Obviously, it's around the corner. And so we can check that off the list. Tommy's probably on foot. But the hardest part is you don't know what you don't know on these. And so we don't know that Tommy didn't get picked up by a friend, a girlfriend, hitchhiker, taxi, whatever it is. And so we're trying to cover all those bases as fast as we can. And Each time we cover one of them, we don't get any closer to catching up with them. And do you assume that Tommy is armed and dangerous? 
We do. Our best information at the time is he still has the gun. And even if that gun was left behind, you don't know what else he might have. Right. Tommy's who knows where in our small town. You know, it's middle of the night. It's cold. It's a little bit wet out, but it's not pouring down rain or anything like that. And so it's not a night that you couldn't survive outside all night in weather like this if you had to. And so our canines check and don't come across any kind of track. They check from the car, don't find anything that leads them in any direction one way or the other. We have nothing. We also have the investigation that we have to run at the house at the same time. And so come back to the station and start writing a search warrant. I write a search warrant for Jason's house and for Tommy's car so we can legally and lawfully go through and search those places. The house had been searched, and I use air quotes that you can't see. Our patrol guys go through and check for other victims, the suspect themselves, and make sure the scene's safe, and we're allowed to do that. They didn't see anything noteworthy during that process. The medical examiners, they're able to go deal with their investigation with Jason's body, but then once his body's removed, even though it's Jason's house, because we didn't know how Tommy fits in, if he's living there, paying rent, what his status is, rather than risk losing any type of evidence down the road in court, it's always safer for us to write that search warrant. But that's not a quick process. It's been talked about on prior episodes that that takes a couple hours drafting a search warrant, working with a prosecutor to get it reviewed, ultimately get it to a judge. Did you have to go to the judge's house? Being that it was, you know, middle of the night, you know, Thanksgiving Friday rolled into the holiday weekend. I end up going to the judge's house, waking them up and presenting them this affidavit and search warrant. They review it right there in their living room. How long does it take for a judge to review a search warrant? Do they rely on you to paraphrase and then they sort of give a cursory glance through it or do they read every word? They read every word. I've had judges say in the past, the thicker your affidavit, the less probable cause that you have. Why is that? Just because you're having to over-explain and really try to tie all these things together, depending on the case, instead of it just being like, this is why I need to search this is because A, B, C, and D. Too much justification. It's like a big spider web and you're trying to connect all these dots. And they've said, you know, if you have a really thick search warrant affidavit, maybe you don't have a whole lot of PC. My whole feeling is PC is PC. Probable cause. Yeah, once you get to probable cause, you just have to meet that threshold, which is more likely than not, 51%. Okay. So judge signs off on it, and it's the middle of the night, it's dark out. We decide to hold the scene until the next morning, and we have daylight to work in. It expends some resources to have someone guard the scene all night, but in this case, it's only a handful of hours until the sun comes up, and we're able to do a better job. We need the evidence, but it's not the number one priority. We towed Tommy's car back to our police department, so we were able to, again, process that on our own timeline and in a secure and safe environment. But still, our main goal is to find Tommy. Our patrol guys exhausted everything they could do that night, and so first thing the next morning, time to go find him. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's gonna be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. 
It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole-body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty free and it's the first and only carbon neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360-degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. 
With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is Simply Safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So our team of detectives get divvied up. Three of our detectives are searching the house. We have a detective searching the car. And then myself and my sergeant pound the street. And we start with Tommy has restraining order against him from an ex-wife. And this is ex-wife from back when life was normal. Tommy's ex-wife lives in our small town. We go talk to her. The restraining order had an element of fear and threats made towards her. She doesn't know a lot about his current life, but by chance, she lives at an apartment complex where Tommy has befriended some other residents, and she's aware of that. And it's created problems with the restraining order and with the management of the complex because Tommy shows up and he's going to a friend's house, but it's kind of near her house. And is it a violation? They don't want him there trespassing. And so we have our first little piece of, well, here's a place he might go. So logical next step, we go there. And the gal that lives there, she's able to live on her own, but she receives government support and assistance for some mental health challenges. And that becomes kind of a prevailing theme in the newer circle of Tommy's friends. He finds females that have some government assistance. He's able to manipulate or take advantage of for shelter or food or transport or whatever it is. And so after speaking with his ex-wife, everyone else that we were directed to kind of fits this mold. And it becomes clear to us that he's manipulating and using that situation to his advantage and takes advantage of these folks. So, you know, there's five or six of these ladies that fit this description. And we start asking them, hey, have you seen Tommy? And we're really not getting a whole lot. One of them remembers a few months ago, Tommy was talking about having guns. And so that's useful information. It's important for the case if they're the same gun, but guns come and go and it doesn't mean it's this gun. And so each conversation we have with these ladies ends with, hey, if you see him or hear from him, give me a call. And so we do this throughout the weekend. We finish processing the crime scene, both in the house and the car, and gain some information, but really nothing we didn't already know, but it's just the evidence to confirm that. We collect the shell casings from the kitchen, four shell casings matching the four rounds we believe were shot, collect some identification type items that confirm that something with his name is in the house, but mainly 
we're spending the entire weekend looking for Tommy, making the rounds through his circle of acquaintances. I end up speaking with one of Tommy's family members. He said, I don't know what happened, but if he did something like that, be careful because Tommy's going to be dangerous for you guys when you do catch up with him. We go home Sunday, get some sleep, Monday morning, come to work, and we get a 911 call. And it's from the apartment complex where Tommy's ex-wife lives and the apartment that she directed us to that he has a friend at. It's from that apartment. And she's calling and says, Tommy's here. He's asleep on my couch right now. It's the first info we have that puts any kind of location on Tommy. And so we get there and surround the place. And fortunately, it has a back sliding glass door that opens up into kind of a patio area. Our dispatch is able to stay on the phone with the resident and they give her the instructions that once we were all set up, hey, if he's still asleep, come out the door and you know, listen to the cops. And so she comes out pretty quick after we all get there. So she's safe and confirm, yeah, Tommy's still in the apartment on the couch asleep. She gives us permission to enter her apartment. And so we go inside and he's clearly our guy and he is passed out, has no idea we're there. So we take him into custody his hands are getting pulled behind his back and he's wearing handcuffs before he even wakes up and recognizes the police are there. What's Tommy's reaction to that? So his reaction to being woken up that way would be, what the hell just happened? Look in his eyes like I was asleep and now there's like four guys around me with guns and I'm in handcuffs. And then I think once he kind of realized that he wasn't dreaming, he wasn't surprised. He knew why we were there. So no gun when you guys initially search him? No, no gun. No weapons of any kind on him. So we transport him back to the police department, and now it's time for the interview. My boss first checks with him and asks him if he wants something to eat and makes a food order. What does Tommy order? The go-to. It's McDonald's. It's McDonald's. McDonald's. Uh, I think it was a Big Mac and fries. We send a detective to go hit the McDonald's, and I go in there. And my dad did this for 30-some-odd years. He's been on before, Detective Don. Detective Don, yes. We love him. The legend. He's a legend. But he has a term for it. The interview, he describes it as the dance. And so Tommy and I start dancing. And how long the dance takes before it gets to the good part depends on every interview. And in this case, I said, Tommy, why are we here? And Tommy said, because I killed Jason. Wow. And so it's clear we're not going to have to play a bunch of games. You know, a lot of times suspects want to know what we have evidence-wise or information-wise before they'll admit to anything but not Tommy. So I collect myself really quick and like, well, you know, tell me about it. And over the course of the next couple hours, Tommy takes me through what happened. He starts by telling me about how he ended up at Jason's house. And this wasn't the first night Tommy was there. He'd been staying there frequently, but part of the deal to stay there was he had to put up with Jason's crap. And Jason was constantly on him, calling him worthless, demeaning him and just being a bully, really. And for a while, Tommy put up with it because it was a roof over his head, supply of drugs, and then it came to a head that night. Jason pushed and pushed and pushed, and the ranting over the ice cube trays was enough. You know, having dealt with cases with Jason, Jason wasn't a nice person. But like we say in the office here, it's not against the law to be an asshole. And just because you're an asshole doesn't mean that somebody can murder you. There was no need for the confrontation in the first place. Yeah, if you don't like it, just leave. Exactly. And don't come back. Or fill up the ice cube trays. Yes. <laughs> so Tommy and I get through what happened, and then I want to know where this gun's at. 
we didn't find it at the house, wasn't in the car, and he didn't have it on him when we arrested him. So we start talking about the gun and the pillowcase he had in his other hand. Tommy said he shoots Jason. He leaves out the sliding glass door of this small house, gets in his car, drives a block and a half, runs out of gas, gets out on foot and is on foot in the neighborhood. And as luck would have it for him, the next morning was trash day. So almost everyone had their garbage cans out at the curb. And Tommy shoves this pillowcase in one of these trash cans. Immediately upon finding that out, we go back out there and hope to get lucky. Half the cans are empty, half of them are full. With the holiday, when did the garbage actually come? And we're working on getting all that information and we strike out. Had we known that that night, we probably would have come across it, but here we are days later with that info. And so we strike out there. But he says he walks through the neighborhood and makes a big loop. At one point goes by the house and is able to see emergency vehicles at the house. He talks about seeing the ambulance that had come. And so he's a few hundred yards away from us. But Tommy keeps moving. And if people keep moving, it makes it hard to catch up with them unless you truly cross paths. But like our canines, when I had Fido, when Dan had Fido, if you hid somewhere and I was in that yard or on that block, I was going to find you. But if I'm in this yard and you're two yards over and you just keep moving and staying a yard or two ahead of me, if you're able to keep moving and never stop, unless I can see you, I can't catch up with you. Tommy just kept moving and moves past us and then goes on what he described as a long walk and walked all over the city that night. Tommy tells me that he unloaded the rest of the bullets out of the magazine of his pistol, maybe a mile north of where the scene was, and threw them in the gutter in the side of the street and just got rid of the bullets. I would just like you to have a conversation with the person who goes down manholes in your city or any city for that matter, and ask them, how many bullets do you find down there? And other weird shit. Exactly. So Tommy finds a unoccupied house with a for sale sign and finds the door unlocked. Lets himself in, shuts the door. Tommy told me about how his feet were cold. Um, they got a little bit wet going through puddles and stuff like that. And so he's able to sit in the bathtub of this for sale house and warm his feet up with warm water from the bathtub and is able to find there's some lunch meat in the refrigerator. And Tommy hunkers down there for the morning and then goes back out on foot, trying to you know avoid police and not go anywhere where people would know him. That explains part of our difficulty we had in coming across him is he was intentionally staying out of his normal circle of contacts with the knowledge that it would probably keep him away from us. And he was right for the most part. So he goes through the weekend, walking around on foot, makes his way up late Sunday to a boat landing we have on the north side of our small town, runs along the river, where he kind of has a history with fishing up there and kind of a spot that calms him down. And he says he takes the gun and the, the magazine and he throws them in the bushes along the riverbank up there. Wait, what? He's next to a river. Why not throw it in the water? In talking with him, I think he wanted the gun out of his hands, but I don't think he wanted it gone. And I don't think he wanted it gone for two reasons. One, if he ever needed to go back to it, it was an option. But at the same time, he knew what was going to happen in this case, I think. I think from the moment it happened, he knew and he was living on borrowed time. I think Tommy's an honest person at the core. And he wanted to be completely forthcoming with us after he showed us where it was at and took us out there. I think part of that gun ending up in the bushes instead of the water was him being able to fulfill that for himself. So we go for a drive. 
Tommy and I and another detective and drive his route through the neighborhood right around the murder scene to the best of his recollection. It's daylight now. He does the best he can to retrace his steps. We go through there and then up into this neighborhood to the north where he had thrown the bullets and he thought he remembered where that was at and tried to point it out to us, but we weren't able to find the rest of the bullets he'd taken out of the gun. He points out the house that was for sale that he'd spent some time in and ate the food at. And so we knew where that was at. And then we drive up to the boat landing. And this boat landing's not nearby where we're at. I mean, several miles as a crow flies. It would take hours to get there. On foot. Yeah. That's a hike. And he takes us up there and points generally down the riverbank, probably 200 yards. Tommy said the gun would be in those bushes down there. The magazine's closer to that big tree. I get why it's important to retrieve the gun. That's obvious. But why is it important for you guys to go around with Tommy and see what his escape route is when there's no physical evidence left there? The reason why it's important is because you've got to corroborate Tommy's statement. He's giving you a confession. So you have to corroborate those facts. And retracing his steps does that. What we're trying to do is show that he's credible and he's telling us enough that we can substantiate his confession. And if he says the gun is 200 feet up there by a tree on the bank of the river and you go there, these are just little statements that keep corroborating what he's telling you. And that's for the sake of the jury if the case goes to trial. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, we always think that these cases are going to go to trial. You have to approach these investigations that way, that it's going to go to trial. Defense attorneys are really good at their jobs. And if they find out that we cut corners, that defense attorney is going to tear us apart on the stand. So that would impeach your credibility. It would. It's very important that you don't cut any corners. The small details are very important in these cases. I see. So by this point, it's getting late on Monday night. As before, we decided, well, we'll wait till morning where we have daylight to work with. And the next morning, detectives go out there and after rigging some rope, they were able to scale this riverbank and with a metal detector, find both the gun and the magazine, basically right where Tommy said they'd be. If detectives had to use a rope to scale down the riverbank to pick up the gun, how was Tommy going to get down the riverbank and get the gun? Like, I don't think he had rope, and I don't think he had somebody there to help him. Well, where there's a will, there's a way. I guess that's true. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So now that you've gathered all this evidence, you have the gun, the magazine, and a confession. Does he go to trial or does he take a deal? He goes to trial. Does he plead not guilty? He does. But he just told you he did it. Yeah, but the way the system is designed is we or the state has to prove that to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And so between his own thoughts and his attorney, they wanted to present the case to a jury. And all they have to do is convince someone that he didn't do it or maybe he didn't do it. Reasonable doubt isn't beyond all doubt, but it's what's reasonable. And so we go into a jury trial, and trial on cases like this doesn't happen fast. This one was just inside a year, so months and months after this happened, we finally go to trial, and a lot can happen with people in six months, a year. One-Eyed Bill is a character, and I needed to find him to serve him a subpoena for this case to tell him, hey, be at court on this date and time. And I had no idea. I couldn't find him. And fortunately, he came into the lobby of the police department, starts yelling at our counter staff. He was basically making demands and trying to, I guess, extort or pull favors from us. You know, I'm going to lie. I told you the truth, but I'm going to get up there in court and actually lie to hurt your case unless you help my buddy get out of jail. And I don't even remember his full list of demands, but he had a list of demands. That's all on video in the lobby, by the way. Oh, yeah. You know, I try to take the nice road with him and explain to him, you don't get to make demands. That's not how this works. We're going to need you to testify and be honest. And that's lost on one-eyed Bill. And being nice, it's not what he's used to. And it didn't get me anywhere. He just, nope, this is what I'm going to do. And I was able to serve him the subpoena there. And that interaction ended with me and him yelling at each other. And it ended with me telling him to get the hell out of the lobby with the idea that if he comes back around, at trial, then great. If he doesn't, we can use this interaction where he says, I'm going to get up there and lie to impeach him, you know, show his lack of credibility. We also have his initial statements on tape. You know, if he does get up there and lie, we can play the tape of, well, this is what you said initially. Why'd you change your mind? But the problem with that is you don't want to impeach your own witness. And so when I Bill definitely made our lives hard. It's just easier if they're on board. Sure. <laughs> it's 100% less messy. Oh, yeah. So there's no way One-Eyed Bill hung on to this subpoena and remembers this date. By chance, One-Eyed Bill gets arrested on something completely unrelated like four days before trial starts. So One-Eyed Bill is in custody and is going to stay there based on the crime he committed until the end of this trial. So we have that piece handled. Even though you have no idea if One-Eyed Bill is going to get on the stand and tell the truth or stick to his plan to lie. Exactly. At least I don't have to find him. The other gentleman that was in the living room when the murder happened is from out of town. He lives primarily in a town two or three hours south of our small town. I had to coordinate getting him up here to testify. And so got him a place to stay for the length of trial. So then we started a murder trial. And the prosecutor on this case is awesome. She relies on her detectives a lot and listens, and it's a true team feeling between the prosecutor and detectives. 
she's just thorough and she wants you to be thorough. And she's constantly thinking of little holes in the case. And it's your job as the investigator to go patch them up. She's awesome. Did Tommy take the stand in his own defense? He did, which is uncommon. Tommy painted Jason as a jerk and you just can't kill someone because they're a jerk. And so the defense wanted to paint a story that it was kind of a self-defense scenario. Tommy had that perception that I go in the kitchen like, hey, man, calm down. And he turns at me and was mad and clenched his fist and came at me, which we know didn't happen. One, from statements, but two, the evidence from the medical examiner and the autopsy and these wound paths of the bullets told us that he wasn't coming at him unless he was running at him backwards. It wasn't like he got shot in the side where his head was turned. Jason was shot in the back. There was a moment, probably the highlight of the case, the defense attorney gets done. And so it's a prosecutor's turn to cross-examine Tommy. And she takes him through the going around the corner, looking at him in the kitchen. And Jason had charged you before and been mean to you before, but he didn't do any of that this time, did he? And Tommy on the stand goes, no, not this time. And completely blows up his own defense. But now there's nowhere for him to go. The truth's easy. You don't have to think to tell the truth. The prosecutor was asking fairly benign questions of Tommy. It wasn't a trick or anything like that. He didn't charge you that night, did he? And the answer was, no, not that time. And so Jason had been a jerk before. He may have assaulted Tommy before, but not that night. From the moment we started picking a jury until the moment the judge handed down the sentence, this trial lasted three days. That seems remarkable. It was in the history of the county. No one can remember a faster murder trial than three days. How long was the jury out? An hour. And most of that time is filled with administrative stuff that they have to do once they reach their verdict. So not very long at all. Amazing. So Tommy's in prison now? He is. Wow. Before we wrap this up, I just want to ask one question. So Tommy's in prison and Tommy is still addicted to drugs. What happens to somebody like him when he goes to prison? This seems like a really good opportunity to get clean. It is a great opportunity to get clean, but it's very easy to find drugs in prison. If you really want to get clean, there are programs in prison. Even if they're not going to shave any time off your sentence for attending those programs, you can utilize those programs. There's some help. There is help there. But unfortunately, there are countless examples of inmates getting contraband into prison. How does that happen? I'll tell you right now, it's usually the guards. Really? Yeah. Ah, that just seems wrong in every way. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. That's a terrible reality. Well, Justin, thank you so much for bringing that to us today. There were so many near misses there, so many things that could have gone wrong. Tommy could have thrown the gun in the river. One-eyed Bill could have shot the whole thing down. The amount of stress. You got to take the good breaks when you get them. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, my boss likes to say, you have to go out and make your own luck sometimes. We eventually got the break we needed to find Tommy. That wouldn't have happened if we just sat back and waited. You just got to go out and find people and get them off the street. Because if he is dangerous or is panicked or scared and some truly innocent person, you know, comes across him, then what's going to happen? And that's on us. Thank you so much. It's so good to have you back. Thank you, Justin. You bet. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. 
This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor, The Real Nick Smitty, and Alec Cowan. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.